Hello and welcome to Fast Forward by Commotion, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and as always, I'm joined by Jonah Bliss, VP of Media and Marketing for Commotion. And welcome to a new season. We are back with a raft of episodes here to cover the future of urban mobility. Jonah, how was the break? Uh, all I can say is that I missed you, Greg. Your, your sweet, dulcet tones, our weekly chit-chat, uh, I've been going through withdrawal. Well, we've had plenty of time to talk uh, off podcast screen because, of course, we're in the midst of planning uh, two great events this year, as always, Commotion Miami coming up on June 16th and 17th, unless you'll correct me on the dates, and, of course, Commotion LA in November. And while we expect, of course, that due to the ongoing pandemic, that Commotion Miami will probably be a hybrid event for the where the, uh, the Floridians will gather amongst themselves, but we expect to be back together in person uh, in November because I don't know about you, but I'm watching that vaccination count tick up day by day. Yeah, knock knock on wood and needle in arm. Um, but you know, we're we're really looking forward to it. Um, and I think you know it it's going to be a busy year, especially here on the podcast. I mean, this uh, spring season should be a lot of fun. Um, running up just to about the Miami event, but already got some great guests in store, uh, including who's this week's guest, Greg. I would say we're kicking off a new season with Bradley Tusk of Tusk Ventures and Tusk Tusk Strategies, the man who literally wrote the book on how to subvert local government uh, to help further your startup here. So Bradley, who is, uh, you know, Bradley's a free thinker. He's got some really interesting stuff to say about, of course, uh, Prop 22, which we'll cover in a bit. Uh, but also he's advising Andrew Yang for mayor. And so he has some really interesting discussions about how Yang can crawl out from under the thumb of Cuomo when it comes to uh, getting the New York subway system under his control. But that's coming no, up in a bit. That's the kind of government. It's a version that I like. <laughs> yes. Indeed, indeed. I would say anything that subverts Cuomo, I, perhaps I will vote for. Um, but we've got a lot to cover before we get to that point. So where shall we begin? I, I, I would, I'm inclined to begin with that no longer is he Mayor Pete. He's now Secretary Pete to you, Secretary Pete Buttigieg of DOT, uh, who's already a breath of fresh air coming into the administration here. He's uh, he's acknowledged in one of his very first tweets that uh, DOT historically tends to destroy black neighborhoods by building highways through them and that hopefully they'll stop doing that. He's appointed Polly Trottenberg, who was the director of, of Department of Transportation in New York under de Blasio for seven years, uh, to return to DOT as his assistant uh, secretary, deputy secretary, I should say, and, uh, and brought in a raft of other New Yorkers here. And as, as uh, NYU Sarah Kalpin pointed out a few weeks back on Commotion Live, um, really, we finally have the personnel in place, and personnel is, poli- personnel is policy, uh, to think about what an urban-focused Department of Transportation would do, not one that's just focused on highways and cars. So reasons to be optimistic, even if we're still waiting for that 1.9 trillion stimulus we were promised yeah we're, we're still waiting for those stimmy bucks um i mean yeah i, I share your your kind of cautious optimism um, we are already starting to see the status quo push back a little bit they're already starting to waffle on things like vmt and raising the gas tax but i mean at the very least it's nice to not just have like a, a highway man at the helm Indeed. Or, you know, or Secretary Chow, who I'm not quite certain exactly what Secretary Chow did to return. Oh, highway woman. <laughs> yes, indeed. And in AV's galore. But we'll come again to those momentarily. But what else have we missed over the last few months, Jonah? What, what's at the top of your mind? I mean, I, I go to sleep dreaming of SPACs. And if we thought last year was SPAC crazy, this, this year is SPAC crazier. And, and uh, 
Uh, and we're going to address those, I think, pretty much every week this season. And we have upcoming a, a real SPAC expert as a guest, so stay tuned for that, folks. But uh, as we're recording this, um, Lucid, the, uh, the EV maker that has yet to deliver a single car, has just kind of finally confirmed their will they, won't they SPAC um, at uh, a pretty whopping valuation. You got more on that one, Greg? Oh, I've lost track of where it was because at one point it was up, you know, eight hundred and fifty percent when when there were rumors that SPAC was going to be acquired by uh, what is it, Chamberlain Four? Church, I would say that, Churchill uh, Four or something. Churchill yeah. Four. I mean, like, which prime minister is it? I mean, I'm, you know, this, <laughs> keeping track of SPAC names before they acquire somebody is a full time job. But but yes, no, they were they were up eight hundred fifty percent, then they were down forty six percent. I believe the official evaluation was going to be only twenty four billion dollars, but at one point it was worth more on paper than Ford Motor. Uh, William Ford is kicking himself over there, but we'll come back to that in a moment as well. Um, but yeah, the SPAC media has been crazy. I, I need you to list a few here, but you know, everyone is rushing to raise as much money in the public markets as they can, and then just you know buy up whatever piece of the EV ecosystem. And, and why were they doing that? Because of course, you know, Elon Musk. Not currently the world's richest man after he got that Bitcoin position. I love, by the way, how Tesla has made more money from Bitcoin than it has from selling cars, all the cars it's ever sold. And now that Musk is tweeting about Bitcoin being too high, it's actually messing with Tesla's stock price. This is great for all of us who have, you know, I'm, all of I'm our sure retirement funds. I'm sure he's just going to drop it down and then buy some more and tweet about how it's undervalued. So it's uh, we're living I'm, in Elon's world. There, there is no pumping and dumping to be seen here. But, but separate from Elon, of course, a favorite of ours. What other spacs have caught your eye? I mean, I, I think we lost track, but well, you know, there's, uh, you know, who, who else? Who else comes to mind? I mean, it's it's been a laundry list. Um, I mean, with a, a big emphasis on EVs, AVs, and, and lidar companies. So it's, I, I mean, some of these companies, I don't know if they even want you to pronounce their names, but you got Luminar, you got Aiva, you got Ouster, you got Innoviz, uh, you've got. Graph Industrial Corp, uh, <laughs> Velodyne, AI. So it's just, uh, I mean, woof. I feel like an auctioneer just listing them all, but uh, making a lot of uh, newly minted billionaires, that's for sure. Indeed. And like that is just like the LIDAR sector as it spreads through. There's the charging SPACs, the, uh, there's Proterra, the electric bus SPACs. Like, you know, Zos, uh, yeah. Our, our truck yeah. friends. Yep, yep, yep. Indeed, and 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 while that's happening, of course, while all these companies that are shipping, you know, handfuls of EVs, which you know, or or you know, a fraction, you've seen the Detroit Three, the Germans, the Japanese are out there announcing ever more ambitious, of course, electric vehicle plans. So, like, list a few of those. Of course, the Mach E, you know, which Ford got out of the gates, finally hitting the the dealerships there, and so that's proving to be a big success. Uh, Volkswagen, you know, still, you know, in the last few months has been confusing people with its software strategy. They seem to have about five different software groups, and 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 promise to go it alone on the ID3 and ID4. But who else? We've got we've just had recent announcements from Chevy, we've seen from GM. Um, what are a few that come to mind? Yeah, I mean on the on the big side, uh, of course you got the LeBron uh, EV Hummer on the more palatable side, you've got uh, the refreshed Bolt EV and the Bolt EUV, uh, you know, somehow it's slightly more utility I guess if you can fit your legs in the back seat. Um, I think that one's also fun because it's the first Chevy to offer Super Cruise, which is uh Chevy or GM's uh, ADAS system, so it's nice to see that start to trickle down to uh, more moderately priced cars. Um, it's it's yeah, I mean they're, they're coming hot and heavy. 
Yeah, and so that's why I keep you know the, the, so the intersection of those two trends. What I think is interesting is that yeah, the, the German car makers and others, you know, with uh, their tired, staid internal combustion engines and electric vehicle plans, are now realizing like, well, if we can't do a spec, we should at least like spin out this stuff. So you've seen Mercedes has spun out Daimler trucks and is going to rename itself as Mercedes Benz. And then my favorite rumor is you know is the notion that Volkswagen is going to list Porsche separately, a Porsche IPO of sorts, when they've got what the the Taycan and they're coming out with electric vehicles. But, you know, there's reports that could be well above $100 billion, which sounds crazy until you remember that, in fact, Lucid was practically worth more than that on paper at one point. So, I mean, so it I think- seems to me like like if, if I was Ford, I would basically just like take my executive team, you know, temporarily give them all leave, have them form like, you know, speculative EV Corp 2. They raise a trillion dollars and they just buy Ford. <laughs> Boom. Free money. <laughs> That's right. We're gonna have SPACs inside of SPACs. This is now reaching inception, right? Like you create you create yeah. an EV company, sell out to the SPAC, and then you buy Ford with that and, and acquire higher valuation. But, um, but I think speaking of free money, there's also uh, you know some more government bucks might be further juicing the uh, the EV economy. The the Green Act, which is working its way through the hallowed halls of uh, Congress, would basically requalify Tesla and GM for those. Uh, well, I think it's seven thousand dollars federal. Uh, rebates on purchases that they've basically sold too many to qualify for anymore so it's just how do we how do we keep this system just juiced up and roaring I know it really boils down to that. I mean, you know, obviously the whole theme of the entire pandemic is, you know, is just flushing the markets with with uh, taxpayer cash and debt to keep things stoked. But that's obviously going to be a priority for the Biden administration. They've made no bones about the fact that they want to keep those EV credits coming. I mean, it fits the perfect. It's the sweet spot, right? Like, you know, it's progressive, it's electric, but also it just keeps those cars on the road and and uh, hits that demographic squarely. So we'll see. But I would say, but also underlying this, which I think has been interesting, we've been following this in commotion, of course, over the last few months has been the charging boom, right? Like this is, you know, we're, we're finally seeing people wake up to just how much infrastructure will be needed for this. And, you know, there's gold in them, there hills too. And I know one of the interesting things I've followed is, you know, not just, of course, the, the big charging networks that are rolled out across the country, but, you know, groups like Revel, you know, which started, of course, I believe it was with scooters, is, you know, is now pushed into creating uh, e-bike charging hubs around New York. And so mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting to see who can forge, like, that kind of charging fortune. And of course, you know, in a way it goes back to like, you know, the war of the currents and Edison and Tesla himself. And, you know, we're at that another moment, that cusp of a whole new kind of infrastructure being built out. Same way we once built gas stations. Also, I think since we- Hopefully we uh, spare the elephants this time. Hopefully. I was to say, I was one more point here is I think since we last adjourned, you know, uh, uh, Los Angeles had its uh, pump to plug competition where Chris Hawthorne, who we've had on various uh, webcasts, you know, who's the chief design officer for LA is thinking about like, yeah, what are we going to do with all those gas stations in Los Angeles and thinking about, you know, the kind of new programs once they get converted to charging and they're not, uh, not giant super fun sites or, or at least they're being, you know, being cleaned up there. So yeah, so it's going to be another trend where I think we're going to watch all season long here is about, uh, you know, what happens with the charging boom. Yeah. I don't know what else. What else is on your plate, Jonah? Uh, there's there's one more. Um, I think kind of fun one we can chat about before we head to uh, Prop 22 land. But uh, there was a recent FAA ruling, really a, a reinterpretation of uh, one of their kind of most most sacred uh, laws, more or less, that said that if you were using airport money on a transportation project, it had to exclusively serve the airport, uh, which meant that you saw projects like let's say the JFK Air Train where you know, connected to the New York subway and ran for a good few miles to get to the airport itself uh, through neighborhoods that were pretty much transit starved. And, you know, you could be 
sitting on the street looking up at the shiny air train running past you, but uh, you know, couldn't get you to the MTA. Yes, and, uh, I say it's uh, those people movers to nowhere, you know, that's been a hallmark <laughs> of so many airports. I say, I mean, that's the classic, uh, you know, the classic problem with so many of these projects. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if we can actually sort of tie that in. And, and what's fascinating there, of course, is that, you know, ride hailing is built on the back of airport drop-offs and pickups. Uh, I forget exactly what percentage of Uber it was at one point, but it's it's pretty clear that, you know, that ride hailing makes its bread and butter off of uh, off of airports. And that's going to lead to some interesting contention. I know uh, Los Angeles, for example, um, that's going to be sort of the next challenge for uh, LA, uh, LADOT, Salida Reynolds, and her mobility data specification, figuring out exactly how those vehicles are using that. And, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see if we can finally build better alternatives. The, the actual train that goes to the airport in LA would come in handy. I, I imagine for Angelinos like you, Joan. Yes, I, I eagerly awaiting it. But it's it's yeah. I mean, it's a it's a bi-coastal and and non-coastal issue. I mean, you even have you know, Let's go back to New York metro area for a second. Across the Hudson, you got the Newark Airport, which is replacing its own air train after for some reason a train built in the '90s needs to be replaced. But yeah, you know, this new ruling means that if you live in like you know East Newark, South Newark, which are you know, historically very poor, very kind of you know environmentally damaged neighborhoods, uh, you might actually, you know, out of this, get a transportation system that connects you to PATH, to NJT, and to job centers in Manhattan. So, uh, yay. <laughs> well, as someone who's taken that uh, New York air train plenty of times, it, it won't matter that much for a lot of the passengers if they can't actually improve the frequency at off hours on NJIT. So we'll see. <laughs> that, that's going to tie into this larger discussion about America and public transport and how it comes back after the pandemic, which remains to be seen. I would say, uh, just as an aside here, you know, I know uh, Bart, for example, Henry Slate's Henry Graybar recently covered this. Uh, you know, Bart has has uh, I don't know if exceeded is the word or underperformed every worst case scenario they've had for ridership and you know there still continues to be you know even after federal bailout what is the long-term future of this if you know remote work you know continues which is likely will what if you know uh, enough enough uh, irregular commutes I mean there's plenty of parking for people to drive into cities we could see some really really you know bad second third order effects here when it comes to the environment when it comes to congestion in a lot of these places so we shall and see. I think, but, I think we'll have some guests that speak to that in future episodes, but uh, we, we can't do it all today. So uh, what, what we can do today is uh, what, what's new with Prop 22? Yeah, so when we last left you, Prop 22 had just sort of been almost just been passed by the voters of California here. And um, and yes, those companies had spent, uh, what, $180 million uh, to basically push that through by, you know, making every interaction with DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft an electioneering effort to get you to vote for it. Well, they promised they would not raise prices on their uh, on their various services. And Jonah, as a Californian, what's happened? <laughs> well, Greg, <laughs> you wouldn't believe this, but uh, they raise prices. <laughs> no, but I, I will say uh, this is—I've only heard this uh, third hand. I, I don't think I've gotten in an Uber or even used, you know, DoorDash since the pandemic. But uh, that's the word on the street: is that uh, turns out, you know, oh well, we got you know now that we have all these wonderful sort of uh, improvements, maybe depending on who you ask for our, our workers, uh, we gotta gotta cover that. Uh, so putting our hand back in the candy jar. 
Well, while that's happened, of course, you know, the, the thing about Prop 22 that is interesting and to me, frankly, fearful, and we're going to be covering this with uh, guest Dan Taran, who founded Managed by Q, which was a uh, office maintenance company uh, created in an effort to turn these jobs into good jobs, paid close to a $15 minimum wage with benefits and those sorts of things. He eventually exited to WeWork and then has since moved on to be an angel investor in the delivery space. And Dan's going to come on uh, at a future episode to talk a bit about sort of, you know, how these business models are digging their own graves by treating their employees this way. But um, but in the meantime, you know, you know, Prop 22 has, has been, you know, is, is being advanced as a model to go into other industries. We've seen grocery chains fire their, you know, uh, you know, unionized delivery workers to replace them with gig workers. We've seen, you know, as former Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox has talked about taking this model nationwide. Like Prop 22, if they have their way, will become a model for managing all sorts of lower paid, uh, you know, hourly wage workers. And, you know, frankly, that to me, that's a, a terrifying thought. Now, interestingly enough, at the same time, this is happening in the United States. In the UK, their Supreme Court has ruled uh, after years of this that Uber, uh, Uber contract Contractors are not contractors. They are workers. Jonah can explain the nuances here. But anyway, you slice it, it is a huge blow to their business model in the United Kingdom and is going to inspire Transport for London to try yet again to basically kick them out of the nation's capital. So, Jonah, Jonah, what did I ever look? What nuance did I miss yeah. there? But well, it's, either way, it's, it's, it's funny. And, and uh, believe it or not, I'm, I'm not actually a UK labor law expert uh, yet. But it's but so you can play on Twitter. Twitter. It, seems, it seems has sort of like a, a three class uh, way of classifying their workers. So there's contractors on one end, employees on the other, but there's something that they call workers in the middle. And they ruled uh, that you know, Uber drivers fall into that middle delegation, which still uh, you know, means more stringent protections and requirements than just being a contractor. But in a way, at least from a surface level, sounds almost kind of akin to this third way that Uber has fought for uh, in California, where it's, you know, you, you get some benefits, you get some protections, but uh, you're still not a full-blown employee. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see how this plays out in different territories. Well, this is a good segue to our guests week. So Bradley Tusk, as I said, this is the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures. We've had several of their startups be partners of Commotion in the past and, and probably presently. So put that out there for disclosure. But but yeah, we've had Bradley on here because of course he before that founded Tusk Strategies and you know, and before that was a campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor of New York, uh, and uh, and also uh, worked for the Blagojevich campaign uh, as governor of Illinois and others, um, but really sort of made his mark ultimately as you know as an early advisor to uber and was sort of the architect of their campaigns to basically fight local regulators in various cities and that turned into his book the fixer my adventures saving startups from death by politics and interestingly enough the story continues from there because bradley tusk eventually went on to work for lacuna which is the technology company that built the mobility data specification for la which is ultimately being used to try to regulate Uber. So Bradley has lots of thoughts on this. His campaigning for the, is uh, working for the Yang campaign in New York and, uh, and remote work in the future from there. So with that, Jonah, let's take it over to Bradley for uh, what I think you'll find to be a very interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us, Bradley. Hey, thanks for having me. So I guess a place to start, I mean, you literally wrote the book on how Uber and the other startups have sort of, you know, tangled with governments, battled their regulatory regimes and really appealed to the end customers to get them to, to create change and to, and to legalize them in many places. Yeah. Um, 
I'm curious how you feel about Prop 22 in California, of course, which basically was you know uh, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash funding this huge voter referendum to do an end run around AB5 and and basically create gig workers. I, I don't know if you were directly involved with that, but do you sort of no. see that as like the ultimate vindication of that uh, method? Because it seems like they they basically yeah they pulled off a successful end run they, around they, the state they, government. Yeah, so there, there's there's multiple sort of ways to look at it from kind of political execution and craftsmanship to uh, public policy to impact on the rest of the country. And so, you know, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it in that um, it, it seems to me that both sides are somewhat disingenuous around this. So the labor laws that have the model of either your W-2, which is a full-time employee, or a 1099 independent contractor, you know, the genesis of those was back in the 1930s. So the world has changed a little bit since then. And the notion that everyone has to fit into one of those two categories um, just that doesn't make sense to me, right? I understand why the platforms want to say every single person who uses our app, who, who drives for us, cleans for us, whatever it is, is automatically independent contractor. And I understand why labor, especially because they, the private sector unions have lost so much membership over the past four or five decades, really, really want them classified as employees because that's the only way they could then organize them and get members and get dues. But the reality is it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, right? So if someone is driving an Uber 60 hours a week, it's hard in my mind to argue that they're not effectively an employee, right? Um, on the flip side, if someone is cleaning for handy nine hours a week, it's really hard to argue they're not an independent contractor. And so AB5, I think, was a very sloppy bill in that it was just an expression of political force and ideology uh, and kind of taking care of, of donors from labor by the California Democrats. Uh, but wasn't really thoughtful at all. Um, and so I'm glad that AB5 was overturned. But with that said, I would love to still see, you know, something pass in different states around portable benefits. Um, and I think there are ways that you can make distinctions within the sharing economy. So uh, from a policy standpoint, I've kind of got mixed views about it. From a political standpoint, yeah, man, they spent $200 million. They overwhelmed them. They won. They ran a really good campaign. And I have to say, over the last few years, a lot of Uber's political operation has been very weak. Uh, they've mainly lost absolutely everywhere. So it was good to see them get their mojo back a little bit. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you know, Secretary, former Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox, who's now at Lyft, you know, has hinted in interviews that they want to sort of take this nationwide, which I think is interesting given, you know, it would seem like the Biden administration would not be as amenable to others, even though obviously connections, family connections through Vice President Harris's staff yeah. Um, yeah. with through yeah. Uber. But but by question of me, Commotion News, we published an op-ed, you know, arguing that, you know, would we see like a, a backlash, a pro-labor backlash to, to, uh, to, you know, to Prop 22, that they sort of overreach there. And I'm curious, you know, what do you think the prospects are of this becoming? national policy yeah. or how will this shake out? So I, I think it's unlikely because um, if two other th if two things had happened differently, then I think we would have been at least looking at the possibility of national worker reclassification legislation. But one Prop 22 won and politicians are better reading the tea leaves than anybody else. And two, the Democratic majority is very, very small, right? It's a handful of votes in the House. It's literally a tie in the Senate. Um, so their ability to pass anything is very, very limited. And using one of those chits on worker classification is not something that they're going to do. Um, I do think that you'll see the Federal Department of Labor and Marty Walsh, who's the new secretary, especially push to do as much through rulemaking as they can uh, in favor of worker classification, in favor of, of people being seen as full-time employees. I think the National Labor Relations Board, as Biden's appointees take hold, um, will try to rule in favor of labor every chance that they get. 
Um, but I don't think you're going to see anything national. On the flip side, you know, I, I, I love Anthony's sort of optimism, but I also don't think you're going to pass anything that says everyone in the sharing economy is a uh, independent contractor either. I tried to do that actually a couple of years ago um, in 2017, had a provision in the tax bill that said that from an IRS treatment standpoint, sharing economy workers would be considered independent contractors. Um, got through committee, kind of got it all the way until kind of the, the, the very end of the process. And then the Senate parliamentarian said that we were not germane to uh, the legislation around fiscal impact. So uh, we got removed from the bill at the last second there. That was obviously a political deal between uh, the Democrats and labor. But um, I, I do think that uh, the best case scenario for Uber and, and Lyft and everyone else would be um, to see AB5 not move forward in any other state and ideas like portable benefits start to take hold. Interesting. Well, I, I want to draw attention to you. Uh, you. Almost literally a year ago, you wrote an op-ed um, uh, basically saying that you know that uh, the smart money should bet on LEDOT in its fight with Uber and ongoing legal challenges to the mobility data specification, which those of you who are longtime listeners know is one of our pet obsessions here. Um, I'm curious if you still have that optimism that LED, LEDOT will prevail and we'll still and we'll see that kind of like digital governance, algorithmic governance tools be accepted at that level. Uh, would yeah. you write that op-ed again today? I, yeah, I, I, I would. Um, for a few reasons. One, uh, I think LA has maybe the best, you know, DOT leader in the country in Salida. So that's, that's you know, backing the, the, the right leadership there is important. Um, but two, look, I'm a micromobility investor, right? I, I Bird, Nexar, Uber, Kodiak. I, I've got stuff all over the transportation sector out of my fund. Um, and to me, we should have every conceivable form uh, of new technology out there on the streets but at the same time, if you don't find some way to govern it and regulate it, it will not just be chaos. It'll eventually just collapse on, on its own weight. So think about crypto as an analogy, right? I, I believe in crypto. Uh, we're investors in, in Coinbase. Um, but I'm very happy that the SEC tries to prosecute fraudulent ICOs um, because otherwise there's no separating the good actors from the bad actors. Um, and just like you need a regulatory framework for crypto or for drones or for cannabis or esports, um, you need it for micromobility as well. And there's got to be a way for a city department of transportation to at least have the data that they need to say, here's what's working, here's what's not, um, here's some, you know, we might need to put in a bike lane or a scooter lane here, we may need to rip out something there, um, and let them govern it wisely so that it actually is safe and works for everyone. So ultimately, if you want uh, a high technology, highly active micromobility system in any city, um, you need a sound regulatory approach to it. And to me, that's MDS. But I mean, but politically, do you think they can prevail? I mean, I guess it's sort of a legal yeah. fight as well. But being, being in a corner between like the ACLU, EFF on one side and Uber on the other, it's a tough vice to be in. It, 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 yeah, yes and no. Like, so, so in fairness, the ACLU and EFF, I believe that they truly believe in their position on this, right? They truly yeah. believe in privacy and I don't necessarily always agree with them, but I respect their conviction. I mean, Uber's view is a fraud here, right? Uber could care less about privacy. Uh, and I don't think the company changed that dramatically from when I was there till, till now. You know, Uber's just trying to come up with the best polling uh, argument they can against MDS, not because they care whatsoever about user privacy, but because they think that in some way uh, could limit their competitive advantage or, or impede their business model. So, you know, when you are as disingenuous as Uber is being around this, I think it limits your efficacy. And I think that's where they're going to run into trouble. 
All right, great. Well, we'll switching coasts. Uh, you, of course, right now are advising Andrew Yang on his run for the mayor of New York. Yeah. Um, but even before that, you published an op-ed arguing that the next mayor of New York needed control of the subways, a subject of which I agree. Uh, but I'm curious, what would what would be your roadmap if Andrew yeah. Yang is elected and he's Great leading question. in the primary polls? Yeah. Um, how do you defeat Cuomo in this? How do you outmaneuver those interests? So first, first, we got to win the election. Andrew has already come out in favor of uh, city control of the MTA. When I say the MTA, I really mean New York City transit, so our subways mm-hmm. and buses. The MTA obviously goes to the suburbs, too, and there's no reason for New York City to control that. Um, so Andrew's for it, Andrew Yang. Andrew Cuomo is against But Andrew Cuomo is against it not because he has any deep-seated love for transportation. He just has deep-seated love for power, right? Um, so it doesn't really matter what it is you'd be asking for control of. In Andrew Cuomo's world, you have power for the sake of power. It's both the means and the end. Um, not having a great subway system or a bad subway system or anything else in between. And so, yeah, he's going to resist. But uh, number one, you got to get the idea out there. So, you know, b- before we started, we were chatting and I kind of used the analogy of, of congestion pricing, which is an issue that this audience will know well. So the Bloomberg world, Mike rolled that out in like 2006, seven, something mm-hmm. like that, seven, five, you know, really long before it ever happened. Um, and, and look, soundly defeated, kind of laughed out of the room. Albany had no interest. But 14 years later, uh, they finally realized, hey, we actually have a good idea. We need to do it. Um, and it passed. Still hasn't taken effect yet because politicians are afraid of the, the political fallout from it. Um, but, you know, some of these really, really big ideas need time to kind of breathe and percolate and get on a life of their own. And, you know, I suggested this uh, idea uh, around, like you said, about a year ago, Corey Johnson, who's the speaker of the New York City Council, then came out and supported it as well. Now we have Andrew Yang, who's leading the mayoral primary, uh, supporting it too. So that's what we need is just kind of build up support. Um, we may not pass it, you know, during Cuomo's governorship, uh, but on the flip side, you have number one, a product that, that users and riders often consider to be subpar. So there's clearly a 5 million people a day who are often dissatisfied. And so it's not like a, a tough conceptual argument. People get it. And number two, uh, in Albany right now, the Democrats actually have a supermajority in, in both chambers. So in theory, you could pass something uh, and override the governor's veto. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen in the next 12 or 24 months around MTA control. But I do think that it's something you can work on. And then, look, Cuomo probably wins a fourth term, although there was a poll today that said 40% of New Yorkers supported the notion of recall, which was, which was in, not going to happen, hmm. an interesting notion in advance of the 2022 election. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the most likely outcome, in my view, would be when the new governor, whoever it is, whenever it is, when she or he takes office, in that first session is when you do it, it's a lot easier to give up control of something that you never really ran in the first place. Um, so I don't know who that governor is going to be. I don't know if that's going to be in 2020 three or 2027. Uh, but that's how I'm thinking about it. Very interesting. Well, you might be the last Manhattanite left on the island, given the, what I hear about people moving to Miami yeah. and Austin yeah, and that I had flight Mayor, there. I had Mayor Suarez uh, from Miami on my podcast yesterday. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I said to him, okay, here's the field that we have running for mayor in New York. So we have Andrew Yang, who is a you know very pro-tech, pro-business progressive. But you have everyone else in the field really just competing for that, that democratic socialist uh, lane. And that morning, Maya Wiley, who's kind of coming in right now in fourth in most of the polls, had proposed a, a stock transaction tax and a number of other taxes. 
And Suarez said immediately, I hope she wins uh, because he knows that that will just drive more and more people and more and more businesses down to, to Miami. And I've had the same conversations with, with Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. And so, yeah, look, we, we've got to be careful because I think New York's economy is already very much on the precipice because to me, COVID is maybe the most dangerous thing that's ever happened to New York City. So if you think about the decline of manufacturing in the 20th century, there was this aha moment that manufacturers had that said, oh, I can make this product in Mexico, Taiwan, wherever, for a tenth of the price, and the quality is good enough. Once they realized that, there was no turning back, and a city that was totally dependent on manufacturing, so a Baltimore, a Cleveland, a Detroit, they never stood a chance, and they've never really recovered. Um, and the reason why New York was able to resist that and withstand that, and although we lost plenty of manufacturing jobs, is we were the white-collar hub of America. And if you had a giant company in finance or you know, commerce or law or marketing or media or advertising or whatever sector, you either had your headquarters in New York or you had a really big office in New York. It was just assumed that that's what you had to do. And COVID, my fear, is just replicated that aha moment where businesses said, we don't have to be in New York. In fact, we don't have to be anywhere. So all of a sudden, with that mindset and that freedom, some are moving to Florida or Texas. Some might just say, hey, we'll have a fully distributed workforce and people can work from home completely. But even if we lost, say, 20, 25 percent of office jobs in New York City, for every one office job, there's got to be at least one and a half food service, custodial construction, retail jobs that support it. Um, and if all of a sudden you're, you're losing that many jobs, your tax base shrinks pretty considerably, and all of a sudden, your, your needs significantly outstrip your revenue, and that puts you in a downward spiral. So New York's in a really tough spot, and it does frighten me that most of our mayoral candidates don't seem to understand this. But here's, but here's what I understand. I mean, you just published a, an op-ed in, in Fast Company here basically saying that, yeah, that once, once COVID is over, people will begin to realize that the greatest threat is, of course, climate change. So what I don't understand is why people are moving to the most climate-vulnerable city in America. And, and, how, and how, as a strategist, do you actually sell that? Because I totally agree with you. People are making crazy decisions right now in light of the ultimate crisis, which is climate change, moving to large exurban homes, buying the biggest SUVs you can. We don't even yeah. sell sedans in America anymore. And then you're going to be faced with this. And Miami, you know, is on the press, is, is on the front lines of this as much as the Southeast is and the Sun Belt in this too. So yeah, I mean, so yeah, as your ultimate test as a strategist, how would you sell this? So it's a great question. I, I've asked myself this, this a lot as well. And, and I think the answer so far in terms of at least why it's happening is um, the people who are making these moves have a lot of mobility. So I have a really good friend who's in private equity who you know, lived in an amazing house in Malibu on the beach. And he, you know, said, look, California's taxes are out of control. Uh, wildfires were very scary. And he bought a really giant, beautiful house in Miami. And I kind of was thinking like, hey, aren't you worried it's going to be underwater in 10 years? But from his perspective, the amount of money he's going to save on taxes over the next couple of years alone uh, more than makes up for it. And then when things get too hairy, uh, he'll move somewhere else. So, you know, wealthy people, I think, really aren't nearly as, as captive to climate change as poorer people. Um, and so, you know, that's where I think you really have these amazing, you know, and, and major inequities. And the point I was trying to make in that, in that piece, and I appreciate you raising it, is, you know, if you think about the ways that life has changed under COVID, you know, this is kind of what I imagine like living in, in wartime right? It's just a very, very different approach to life than we were used to having. And if you take the politicians who have mishandled this, most notably Trump, um, the voters punish them, right? They, you know, I don't know that Trump loses that election apps in COVID, but once he screwed up COVID so badly, he, he was a goner. 
Um, mm-hmm. And to me, the next big shift like that is climate change. Which all, right now, we can't go out of our house. And I'm, I'm sitting in the middle of Manhattan in my apartment. Um, you know, I certainly couldn't go out without a mask because the odds of my contracting COVID would be, you know, reasonably high. Um, fast forward five or 10 years from now, and either it's too hot certain times of the day or certain seasons of the year to go outside, or water doesn't come through the tap when you turn the faucet on, or power is intermittent uh, because of things like wildfires. Um, life, again, in the way that we know it, could meaningfully change. And the point I was trying to make uh, in the column is, the same politicians who right now are blowing it on COVID um, ought to realize, hey, when things go really bad, the voters expect you to step up. Um, and either you can get out ahead of this and try to solve it now, or you can repeat the same fiasco that Trump did. Uh, and my hope is that enough politicians are wise enough that even if they don't actually care about the environment, even if they don't actually care about you know any of the impacts of climate change, uh, I know they care about themselves and I know they care about their political careers. And so hopefully for their own sake, they'll take action. Well, one last question then before you go is, is you know, given, given the potential for that kind of flight out of America's major urban centers, which, you know, is happening to various degrees depending on the data, how does it scramble politics in places like this? You know, do we see more red states go blue? Uh, you know, you've obviously written about the advantages of being blue, sta- blue cities and red states. Um, what, what kind of political coalition do you build in a post-COVID America that can actually sort of, you know, yeah, sell that message and, and take effective action on climate change. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question. So I think you're going to see, at least in the immediate impact, uh, some red areas turn a little more blue. So about 450,000 people have left New York City uh, since COVID, mainly people with homes in uh, out in Suffolk County, Long Island, in Dutchess County or Ulster County, New York. Uh, those are typically kind of red areas. Uh, but if all of those people really stay and they register and continue to vote Democrat, um, you'll see some of those seats start to flip. So uh, on one hand, it makes the exurbs and, and sort of the r- r- wealthy rural areas um, a little more Democrat. On the other hand, um, maybe it weakens the death grip that Democrats have on urban politics in most parts of this country. And you can have more competitive races. Look, I, I'm an independent. Um, I truly believe that both parties are wildly corrupt. So I kind of hate both of them equally. But I would like to see in big city elections, uh, there be more competitive general elections that force more candidates to the center. And I'd like to see in rural areas, more competitive elections that force more candidates to the left. So um, to me, it's poten- the least potential is that the reshifting of population could have a pretty positive effect. Great. Well, that uh, something to uh, keep an eye on, and I'd be curious for our listeners how that sort of continues to apply to uh, to mobility politics. I guess one last last question then is: It was interesting to see Austin passed a seven and a half billion dollar transit referendum right before this exodus, or right as this exodus yeah. is starting to come. And uh, and Charlotte, you know, Charlotte's going to put this back on the ballot as well. I, I'm curious, you know, do you think we're going to see voters in these cities in the Sun Belt with these new arrivals start to tax themselves more to build more transit? Are you hopeful or, or negative against uh, I guess transit you know, in America I'm at this point? Generally hopeful. So my wife is from Austin. Her family still lives there. So we go there at least twice a year, often more. So I feel like I know Austin really well. Um, And the Austin that I started going to in the mid-90s is a dramatically different city than the Austin of 2021, although I haven't been there now in over a year. Um, And you just, it's a great city that is totally stuck. If you're on Mopac, you're on I-35, it's basically impossible to move. Places that were considered like the far out reaches of the city or the suburbs are now considered central for, for real estate purposes. Um, and the only way to fix that is, is by investing in both mass transit 
uh, and better roads and, and better infrastructure. Um, and so nobody wants to spend time stuck in traffic. And so as a result, I, I do think that voters in, in a lot of those places will continue to approve uh, those bond initiatives. And on top of that, also, cities like Charlotte or Austin are really well positioned right now because you know they're blue cities in red states, which means they have all the benefits of being able to attract companies from uh, Silicon Valley, companies from New York City, uh, big banks, big tech companies, because they want the better state tax treatment and they want better weather and they want better regulatory treatment. And yet, because they're moving to what's considered to be a blue city, there's not a lot of outrage among their employees or their customers or anywhere else. It's like, oh, Austin's super liberal and, and super progressive. So, like, therefore, there's no reason that, you know, anyone should have any reason to, to object. And the main reason CEO might really be doing the move is because of taxes and regulation. But you can dress it up uh, in really progressive politics. And so, you know, one, I think those cities will continue to do well uh, in, this, in this demographic shift. And two, yeah, I, I just think because nobody wants to be stuck in traffic, um, it, it's in the inherent interest of, of most people to vote for those types of things. Great. Well, I would say I would look forward to keeping an eye on this in the future. Thank you so much for joining us, Bradley. Hey, thanks for having me. So that was a lot. But I would say the thing that I seized upon the most is, is that Bradley would still, if he had today, do it all over again, bet on LADOT to ultimately prevail in its legal battles against Uber, which I think is sort of interesting that there might be yet a bulwark uh, against these companies, which have so effectively become political machines. They're on right. Like, really is. Like, Uber, the Uber Lyft DoorDash victory in Prop 22 was like new school Tammany Hall, the ultimate vindication of like the fact that they have a relationship with their consumers can be turned into direct political action to overturn stuff. Uh, that to me is a fascinating development on a whole lot of levels. Yeah, the digital beer hall putsch. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a little dark, but, Jordan, but we'll see. Uh, all I will say is that you know, Bradley is a very smart man, so I wouldn't bet against him. I would certainly not do that, but but we'll see. But you know, some of the themes that he explored there obviously are going to be themes that we're going to continue to explore over the next season here of uh, of commotion uh, here at Fast Forward, commotion live, and going forward across our media properties. Um, so you know, with that, I just want to encourage you all to keep listening. We'll be back soon. We've got uh, Dan Taran uh, on here soon to talk a bit about the these labor issues, continuing that theme. Uh, we're going to have SPACs, and we're going to keep going from there. So so yeah, so it's going to be a wild ride in this season leading up to Commotion Miami, June sixteenth and. 17th. Um, Jono, I don't say any, any other pet projects or passions of yours that we're going to cover this season? Uh, I think you've uh, delved into it pretty well. Uh, SPACs, 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 uh, policy, EVs, what does it all mean? Where do we go to recover from COVID? And uh, it's, it's going to be a wild ride. So uh, stay tuned listeners. And Greg, I'm, I'm glad to have you with us. I'm glad to be here. All of you listening, go get that vaccine. Go get jabbed as, as soon as you can, wherever you can. Keep refreshing. Keep smashing the space bar and refreshing that appointment calendar wherever you happen to be as it becomes available. And, and hit that like button. And hit that like button indeed. All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you for listening. Jonah, thanks for joining me. Uh, I'm Greg Lindsay, and we'll be back soon with a new episode of Fast Forward by Commotion. Till then, take care. Take care.